Hiker movies, the sound of Harleys coming down the road usually meant trouble was on its way. It was not a sound that fostered a sense of peace and tranquility in the hearts of most people. But when you're actually on one, cruising down a twisty road on a beautiful day, the sound of a Harley pulsing to the beat of your heart has an unbelievably calming effect. (laughs) And so I was enjoying myself a month ago on my way to Tennessee. I'd almost gotten to the Hoosier National Forest and some awesome roads that I had discovered a month earlier when my sense of tranquility was suddenly shattered. Going to the little town of Ligoti, Indiana, a young woman in a compact car darted across the left lane from a parking lot and cut in front of me. I hit my brakes and turned to avoid hitting her. Now, if you're not a biker, that sounds like the right thing to do. But turning while braking usually means your bike is going down, and it did. All I remember next is my helmet hitting the pavement. I jumped up and assured everyone that I was all right, but the tranquility of my ride had been invaded by a bit of turbulence. And that happens all the time, whether you're on a Harley or not. Turbulence comes into every life. And it comes in a variety of ways and in a variety of forms. Sometimes it comes from without, from unseen circumstances, and even nature itself. Who hasn't experienced turbulent weather? Who hasn't had the tranquility of a beautiful day shattered by a violent thunderstorm or a funnel cloud? Sometimes it comes from within. Something is going on within us, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Something that keeps us agitated and makes us very difficult to live with. And who hasn't been impacted by frantic people living in turbulent times? People who let irrational fears about the future and their financial security rob them and those around them of any sense of peace. Indeed, turbulence will come into our lives, and we're not going to be able to stop it. We may be able to avoid some of it by the choices we make, like whether to ride again or not. But even if we withdraw, from everything that has within it some level of unnecessary risk and cut ourselves off from everyone who might impact us negatively, we're not going to be able to avoid all turbulence in life. In a fallen world, turbulence will come. So the real issue is not how to avoid it. It's how are we going to handle it. And once again, Jesus 
is our best example. He faced as much turbulence in life as anyone. In fact, he no doubt faced more than anyone else because all the turbulent forces of evil were marshaled against him. But he was never overwhelmed by it. Instead, he brought calm to the turbulent wherever he found it. And in our text for today, we find him bringing calm to a turbulent sea, a turbulent life, and a turbulent people. We're studying again in Luke chapter 8, ready for verses 22 through 25. Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Luke continues his narrative with a general, Now it came about on one of those days. Mark gets more specific and identifies the day. It was the same day that Jesus had taught the parable of the sower. Multitudes had followed him from the cities right to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And to be able to address them effectively, he had gotten into a fishing boat and pushed a little offshore. After teaching them for some time with parables, he told the disciples to join him in the boat and suggested they go over to the other side of the lake. It was evening, and it would be a six- or seven-mile journey across the lake. I imagine disciples liked the idea and were looking forward to a relaxing ride across a placid lake. Jesus settled in on a cushion in the back of the boat and soon fell asleep. The only time, by the way, we have record of him ever sleeping. All was well with the world until the storm hit. Luke says a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake and being situated some 600 feet below sea level, ringed by mountains in the distance, the storm did literally descend upon the lake. It wasn't an unusual phenomenon and the fishermen wouldn't have been alarmed if the waves hadn't swamped the boat. But they did and they were. They thought they were going to perish in the sea. And there was Jesus, sleeping in the midst of the storm. They woke him up with cries of, Master, Master, we are perishing. Mark records them adding the poignant question, Don't you care? How like us they are. 
At the first sign of turbulence, they assume, assume Jesus doesn't care. He responded to their cries by simply rebuking the wind and the waves. Now, it seems a bit odd to rebuke the wind and the waves, as if they were animate creatures who could be held responsible for their behavior. On the surface, that would appear to make as much sense as me rebuking the car that cut me off or my Harley for falling over. Of course, I could have rebuked the woman driving the car if she hadn't taken off. And I have rebuked myself for not letting up on the brakes before turning the wheel. And by the same token, Jesus may have been actually rebuking the one driving the wind and the waves and not the wind and waves themselves. We know from the book of Job that Satan can blow a house down. So Jesus may be actually addressing an evil force that was controlling the elements at that moment. And indeed, the turbulence in nature that we generally refer to as acts of God may not be such. Yes, God is ultimately in control of everything. But Genesis makes it clear that he has allowed sin to affect not only our relationship with him, but nature itself. And the fact that Jesus actually told the wind and waves to be muzzled may indicate that he was addressing the one behind their activity that night. Whatever the case, at his command, the wind and the waves became calm. And the disciples were amazed. Jesus then asked them a very pointed question, Where is your faith? Now, at first glance, he seems to be challenging their faith in him, suggesting that they didn't believe he could save them. But they did have faith in him. That's why they woke him up. They knew he could do something about their perilous state. They just weren't sure he was going to act. They weren't sure he really cared. He didn't appear to them to be as attentive to their needs as he should have been. They were going through a storm, and he was sleeping like a baby. Of course, if they'd really thought about it, his sleeping in the boat should have given them great confidence. Wouldn't you rather be in a boat with a sleeping Savior than with one who is freaking out along with you? <laughs> he had things under control. And if he was confident enough about the future to sleep, couldn't they trust him to get them safely through the storm? You know, even if he doesn't calm the storm as quickly as we would like, even if our boat is swamped, Shouldn't his mere presence in our life bring a sense of calm in the midst of the storm? He has the power to command even the winds and the water. 
And if they need to be reined in, he will do it. Let's trust him. Even if he doesn't bring immediate calm to our circumstances. And let him bring a sense of calm to us and to the turbulence that sometimes rages within us. Verses 26 through 33. And they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and Yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now that's a turbulent life. The boat had apparently been blown off course and landed in the country of the Gerizines or Gadarenes or Gergesenes. Confusion as to the exact location, as noted by the different names given in the various Gospels, was probably caused by scribal errors or a simple lack of knowledge concerning this sparsely populated Gentile area. Scholars have, however, tentatively identified the modern town of Cursa on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee as the likely landing site. And they have done so due to a steep cliff some 40 yards from the shore and numerous caves and tombs in the area. Upon landing in this inhospitable area, Jesus was greeted by two men who were possessed by demons. Matthew notes that there were two of them. But Mark and Luke only mentioned the one who was the focus of attention. And this man certainly merits our attention. The first thing we notice about him is quite simply that he was possessed by demons. Now, we've looked at possession before, so there's no need to once again argue the possibility of such. There is ample testimony to the reality of such in the Scriptures, and since distinctions are made in Scripture between demonic possession and mental illness, we can dismiss the suggestion that it was merely a mental condition. Whether it exists today or how to identify it, if it is, is not our concern this morning. And quite frankly, the Scriptures don't give us instructions on how to deal with it, if it does exist today. But it did exist in Jesus' day. 
and that may be due to the heightened demonic activity taking place while he was on earth. In fact, Satan may have been trying to minimize the incarnation by inhabiting as many people as possible to mimic the miracle of God taking on flesh. Whatever the reason, this man was possessed by demons. And how he got that way, we aren't told. He may have simply yielded to Satan's control bit by bit until he lost all control over his life. Or he may have opened himself up to the demonic by occultic practices. However it happened, he was now a pathetically possessed man. He had lost all sense of decency and civility. He had broken free from all attempts to keep him under control. And when Jesus arrived, he was living naked among the tombs. Matthew tells us he was extremely violent. And Mark tells us he cried out day and night, gashing himself with stones. Here was a man with real problems. He had things going on within himself that make our internal struggles seem almost inconsequential. Anyway, when he saw Jesus, he ran up to him and bowed before him. Apparently, the demons within him knew who Jesus was, and they were afraid of him. They knew that someday he would banish them along with Satan and all the fallen angels to the abyss. And they knew that he was about to cast them out of the man. So they apparently prompted him to beg Jesus not to torment him. Of course, it was never Jesus' intent to torment him. He was about to deliver him. But the man didn't know it. To make his intention clear, Jesus asked the man his name. And when he said his name was Legion, he acknowledged that he was in fact inhabited by many demons. It was the demons that Jesus was after, not the man. And the demons then addressed Jesus directly, entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss prematurely. Instead, they asked that they be allowed to enter into some 2,000 pigs that were nearby. Why Jesus allowed it, we're not told. But it may have simply been to visually assure the man that he was now, in fact, rid of them. Whatever his reason, the pigs apparently didn't like it. They ran down the steep bank and drowned in the sea. Whether they simply panicked at the presence of the demons within or intentionally preferred death to possession, we don't know. But what had been causing the turbulence within the man was gone. Now, I do not believe that every turbulence within us is caused by demons. But if those caused by demons can be calmed by Jesus, surely he can bring calm to our souls if we'll bow before him 
and ask him to remove whatever it is that is distressing us from within. He can bring calm to the turbulence without and to the turbulence within. And he can then use us to bring a sense of calm to other people living in turbulent times as well. Verses 34 through 39. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerizims and the surrounding district asked him to depart from them. For they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, Great things Jesus had done for him. In a Gentile land, pig herders played the role of shepherds. So aren't we glad the Jews kept sheep? The Lord is my pig herder. Just doesn't feel the same. Whether these herdsmen owned the pigs or had been hired to watch over animals owned by others, we're not told. But the way they ran off and reported the loss of the pigs in the city and in the country may indicate that they wanted to make certain the owners knew it wasn't their fault that the pigs had run down the bank and drowned in the sea. Something had happened that they didn't understand. Pigs aren't lemmings. They don't usually just follow each other over a cliff. They didn't know what had happened, but they knew they weren't responsible. When the owners and the merely curious arrived, they found the formerly possessed man dressed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when they found out what had happened, they were frightened. They weren't grateful. They weren't thankful. They were frightened. Why? What was it that frightened them? There was no longer a need to be afraid of the man who had been terrorizing them. And the stranger who had commanded the demons to leave him certainly wasn't a threat. Unless, of course, he had plans to do something else. He obviously had spiritual powers they didn't understand. And they didn't know what else he might do. And besides, what he had already done had cost them dearly. 
He had made the price of pork bellies shoot through the roof. But their profit margins had slipped precipitously. They wanted him out of the country and out of their lives. As one commentator put it, they preferred pigs to persons and swine to the Savior. Nothing mattered to them except getting Jesus out of their midst. They really didn't know him or what he could do for them. But at that point in their life, they didn't care. Financial concerns had thrown them into a state of spiritual turbulence. And they were sending away the only one who could really bring them peace. But Jesus won't stay where he's not wanted. And so he got in the boat to leave. The man who had been delivered by him, however, knew what Jesus could do and begged to go with him. See, Jesus had other plans for him. In Jewish lands, Jesus told those he healed or delivered to tell no one for fear of feeding misguided messianic expectations. But here, in a Gentile land, he wanted the word to get out. These people were living turbulent lives, riding the crest of prosperity one moment and fearing the loss of everything the next. They didn't know the peace and security that comes from a Savior who promises to meet our daily needs as well as our eternal ones. But if the man who had been delivered by Jesus would share with them his story, they could come to know him. They could come to know the one who brings peace in the face of turbulence without, turbulence within, and even the turbulence that comes from simply living in economically turbulent times. They, too, could learn to trust and obey the Prince 